Good day, and welcome to Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. I'm Nancy Derringer, Communications Director for the Research Council, and in this podcast, we look at Michigan through a policy lens. Our discussions here are informed by our 102 years of experience doing nonpartisan, fact-based research on policy issues. We hope this podcast will serve as another way for the public to access our work, which is, as always, free and available to all at our website, crcmich.org. I'm joined today by Craig Thiel, our Director of Research, to take a look at a topic that we've been hearing a lot about lately, the likely legalization of recreational marijuana in Michigan. I say likely because a citizen's initiative law is working its way through the process outlined in the state constitution, and polling suggests it has enough support to be approved on the November ballot, which presents the legislature with a choice to adopt it as written now or to wait for voters to do so in November. Which of the two they choose has implications for what happens down the road? Craig is here to explain. Welcome, Craig. Thanks for having me, Nancy. Hey, no problem. So you know this process probably as well as anyone. Explain what comes next. Well, let me just take a couple steps back and remind uh, everybody how we got to the point we're at. And that was uh, the citizen initiative uh, to enact legislation to legalize marijuana. This group went out, collected over 250,000 signatures, uh, got those signatures certified as to their validity with the Department of uh, State, the Secretary of State's office. And uh, that kicked into uh, gear a timeline by which the legislature has 40 days to enact that legislation, to act on that legislation. They can uh, enact it. Um, They could come up with a separate law or they could do nothing. Um, And so we're nearing that uh, 40-day time frame uh, next week uh, for the legislature to do one of those three things. And um, the There's talk of the legislature possibly enacting this. Uh, They can't amend it, but they can enact it in full. And if that were to happen, it would uh, become law without the the governor's signature. And I guess the proponents of this proposal, if to the extent that they are uh, petitioning the legislature to enact their law, should be happy with that proposal. Okay. But why would a legislature dominated by Republicans, uh, many of whom are likely not fans of legalizing marijuana, want to end run the election and adopt the bill now? Why not just let the voters choose? Right. And so, you know, for years there have been bills introduced in the legislature, my guess is probably not by Republicans, to legalize uh, marijuana in the state like other states, Colorado and Washington, have done. Uh, It should be noted that that none of those states have done it through the legislature, but there's been legislation and the largely uh, Republican majorities have have stopped it, haven't given its, uh, you know, its day in court, so to speak. So this group went, collected the signatures, put it through to the legislature, probably thinking that the legislature wouldn't, would not act, and that uh, it would kick over to the ballot and that they would approve it. So then, again, your question is, why would they act now when 
uh, up to this point, they've been against this as a, um, a, a public policy for Michigan. And I think it has to do with the fact that the law as written and presented to the legislature can be amended by the legislature if they enact it um, with a simple majority vote. So if they were to, uh, by the uh, Monday of next week, uh, get the votes needed in the House and the Senate and approved it, um, then as soon as it becomes law, the next day after that, they could go in and amend that law to correct any defects that they see in the law and only require a simple majority in the House and the Senate to do so. But if, if they allow the – if the voters approve it, if they do nothing and the voters approve it in November, they're going to need a lot more to amend that, correct? Right, right. And so in November, uh, after the voters approve it and public op opinion polling suggests that it's – uh, pretty much on its way to uh, acceptance by the voters, it would require three-quarters of the uh, members in the House and the Senate to approve a change or a vote of the people, which is a very expensive endeavor. But um, so, you know, to the extent that the legislature realizes this is a fait incompli and that it's going to uh, get approved um, by the voters – they could get some leverage, at least in the amending process, uh, if they were to approve it and have an easier um, task of, of making the changes that they deem necessary on a going forward basis. Okay. And this is a... Um this is a complicated issue. I mean, we're talking about legalizing a drug that is still considered by the federal government to be uh, Schedule One, which is where they put the uh, the bad guys, the things with a, a high abuse potential. Um, this isn't something that we can just say, okay, it's legal now. I mean, there's going to have to be a lot of um, regulatory and um, other issues around this. So, you know, this is really going to require the the legislature to earn their paychecks to sort it all out. Um, and we've seen this before. So maybe you could explain what happened with casino gambling in Michigan in the late 90s. Right. So this is not a uh, an unknown uh, occurrence for the Michigan legislature or its citizen initiatives um, to take on a very complex, technically uh, uh, intensive uh, policy area um, and then have the voters approve the legislation only to have the, the legislature have to come back after it's been uh, adopted and do all kinds of cleanup. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, in 1996, uh, casinos were authorized in the city of Detroit um, through a citizen initiative. And before the state could allow those to get up and running, they had to go into the law and make major changes in terms of the licensing, regulation, taxation, um, the relationship between the state and the city of Detroit there had to be spelled out. Um, and, you know, quite honestly, the other than the policy preference being, you know, kind of approved by the people – the, the law as originally proposed to the people doesn't exist in, 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 in much form uh, today after all of the, the changes by the legislature. 
And uh, that that's a similar situation to the medical marijuana uh, proposal that occurred in 2008 here in Michigan. Voters approved that initiative. Um, the legislature did make some changes in 2012, but it wasn't till 2016 that they were able to get in there, get the consensus needed to put in place the licensing system, the regulatory system, the, the taxing system um, that was really needed to get the, the industry established um, in a workable format. So we know that the legislature is going to have to get involved with the uh, adult use recreational marijuana industry. Um, there's some holes in this proposal, and it's just going to be likely easier um, if the vote threshold is 50% plus one as opposed to three quarters in the House and the Senate, three quarters votes in the House and the Senate to approve those necessary changes. Right. And, you know, if you were living in Lansing in southeast Michigan um, in the time after medical marijuana was approved in 08, um, you remember what came next. It was, you know, years of confusion, court cases, some people got arrested, um, you know, lawyers made out like bandits. I mean, there's a really good case to be made for doing this the easiest way possible. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the classic uh, example with the medical marijuana is the fact that we had dispensaries pop up uh, throughout Michigan. And if you look in the law itself, there's no mention of the word dispensary or provisioning center. Um, so, you know, entrepreneurs saw uh, an opportunity to step in and kind of serve as the middleman between the the growers the, and the caregivers and the patients in that case. And um, the law was really silent on it. And, you know, and then you have each local community dealing with it differently because the law is not clear. Um, no should be no surprise we ended up with a number of court cases uh, answering some of these questions about the the vagueness uh, of the law, how to interpret the law. And finally, the legislature's hand was forced to, to come in and make the changes uh, to that law. And that occurred, you know, just two years ago. And we seem to be uh, on the road to getting the industry established uh, probably where it should have been from day one if the if the legislation was was tightened up and workable from day one from the beginning right so june 5th is the deadline which i believe uh you said monday but i think it's actually tuesday of next week um that's just a few days away i mean what you know could this be done fairly easily right now at the you know at the beginning of summer when everybody's you know in an election year when these men and women are thinking about going home and starting the campaign i mean is this something where they could do it fairly simply and then tinker later? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I think it would just require, you know, a majority vote in the House and the Senate to approve it. It's all the uh, I's have been dotted and T's have been crossed in terms of getting the initiative in front of the legislature. Um, just today, uh, we're, I'm talking to you on uh, Wednesday, uh, May 30th, um, the House uh, has signaled that they've scheduled a tentative uh, session day for next Monday. Usually they don't meet on Monday. Uh, and the 
thinking is that's to potentially deal with uh, this issue that would have to get voted on in the House and the Senate before next Tuesday. So um, they're, they're, you know, putting in place all the procedural steps they need to do um, uh, to get this thing approved. The question is, is the political will there um, in the chambers to approve uh, a fairly controversial um, issue dealing with uh, legalizing pot in Michigan. Yeah. I don't, we generally don't deal with the politics um, at, at the research council and I don't want to get too deep into it here, but I don't think it's a stretch to say that this is an issue that a sitting legislator could risk being primaried on. I mean, the state is like the rest of the country dealing with a drug epidemic around opioids and marijuana is to many voters right or wrong seen as a gateway to other drug abuse I mean, do you think any of these men and women want to leave themselves open to a challenge that suggests they're somehow soft on drugs? I mean, this is a a fairly technical distinction between, you know, these two courses of action that isn't going to fit easily into a 30-second spot. Well, definitely there's those considerations. I'd also like to point out that a number of the sitting legislators, um, especially those who've already served in the House and are going to be termed out of the Senate, are, are lame ducks in a sense, and they may not be sitting for another at least uh, state legislative election anytime soon. So whereas there is the – I think uh, potential for those who uh, this might – Arise in a uh, a primary as a uh, election as a, as a um, as a campaign issue. There are those that are a little uh, more free because they're coming to the end of their terms um, in one or the other chambers and aren't likely to seek uh, election again. So, it, you know, it, it's not my position to kind of guess on that. But I did I did think that that was uh, one thing to offer about the effects of term limits in Michigan. Right. That's a, it's yeah. When you're a lame duck, you can, you can do an awful lot. (laughs) So, okay. All right. Well, thank you, Craig. I think that probably um, wraps it up for us. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Yep. Well, we'll check in uh, later and kind of give you the postmortem on this one. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. And moving on from marijuana, now we turn to researcher Jill Roof, who joins me via Skype from West Michigan to talk about one of her areas of expertise, local unit taxation. Welcome, Jill. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yes. Now, the Mackinac Policy Conference is in progress as we record this, and the topic at the center of many of this year's discussions is, once again, regional transit for Southeast Michigan. Now, most people agree the region needs better public transportation. What they disagree on is how that should be funded. Now, Jill, you just wrote a blog at crcmich.org about the difficulty of funding anything, not just transportation, regionally in Michigan. Can you briefly tell us why that is? Yes. um, Local units of government in Michigan, and this includes regional authorities, are largely limited by the state law to the local property tax to fund services. Um, Property taxes are not popular, uh, especially in a system like ours where all different kinds of local governments levy property taxes, which leads to overlapping tax rates um, and can lead to high, especially high property tax rates in some communities. Okay. So, but, you know, metro areas are not 
confined to one city or one county anymore. I mean, particularly in Southeast Michigan, we've got, you know, at least three, arguably, you know, up to five to seven counties that are all considered part of, say, the Detroit metro area. Um, So, you know, for some local services, tax base sharing is necessary to pay for things like transit. And uh, lately, some institutions, um, like in Detroit's case, the zoo and the art museum. Um, How did we get to the point that property taxes are one of the very few ways to do that in Michigan? Well, when local governments want to provide services that go across uh, local municipal boundaries, they can. There's there's lots of state statutes that allow them to form these special authorities where they can provide one service or multiple services, including public transportation. Um, if these authorities are given the ability to levy taxes in state law, that tax is limited to the local property tax. Um, if an authority, some authorities do not have taxing authority. And if not, they are funded by the local units within them, and those are also through local or county-level property taxes. Okay. So that's so. in other words, um, yes, you can form a taxing authority, but it has to be funded by the property tax, and nobody likes property taxes. Yes. Can you get into um, some of the reasons uh, why those would be not only unpopular, but even in some cases um, unfair in Southeast um, Michigan in particular? Yeah, we have, you know, different local communities have different different levels of property value. So communities that have higher property values, they can level uh, property taxes at lower rates to pay for services. Communities that have lower taxable values have to level, levy their property taxes at higher rates. And this can then drive people that can leave the community to leave the community. It creates a cycle where um, communities within the region that do not have the tax, high taxable values are levying at prohibitively high rates, um, which is why we need tax-based sharing to fund some of these services. Right. And that's why you end up in places like Detroit, which has just staggeringly high taxes, uh, property taxes anyway, um, compared to, say, Novi or Troy, uh, which are mm-hmm. sharply lower. But they can, but Novi or Troy can raise a lot more with one mill with lower rates. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Troy has about, I think, five times the property tax value of Detroit. Right. Exactly. So, okay. So how do, you know, other metro areas have figured this out. Um, How do our peers, um, say, in the Midwest um, or elsewhere, fund their mass transit? Well, I'm I'm currently in this research now and looking at different um, transit agencies across the country. It appears that many providers in other states have, first of all, they have more than one local tax in support of transit. Um, and the most popular type of local tax levied to support transit appears to be the local sales tax. So some examples include uh, Metro Transit in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Um, they level levy a local sales tax, a local property tax, and a local vehicle tax. Uh, Chicago, the CTA, they have a local sales tax and a real estate transfer tax. Um, in Seattle, they have local sales, property, car rental, car tab tax, um, multiple local taxes in support of transit. Um, and a lot of communities rely particularly on a local sales tax. Okay. Um, if, Go ahead. So, I was just going to say, if you look at the national transit database, um, local sales taxes are levied by 
by far the most um, transit agencies and local governments in support of public transportation, more than other kinds of local taxes. Okay, and that kind of spreads the the burden around um, to other than property owners. I mean, you can you can argue that that uh, renters, for instance, pay property taxes indirectly um, mm-hmm. through their rent, but still, it's it's not they don't get a, a separate bill the way um, homeowners would or yes. business owners that that says you know pay on I'm you know pay this amount so okay and 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 if you're a vibrant community attracting visitors you're spreading that tax to some people that are coming into your community too right and who are, who are also going to probably use the public transit as well mm-hmm. yes okay but what's the problem with using the sales tax in Michigan uh, well, the problem is, is that our state constitution limits the state sales tax to 6% and restricts what the revenue can be used for, largely for school funding and um, state revenue sharing. So it's unclear if or how these constitutional restrictions would affect a local sales tax. So we're not sure exactly what would be needed. At a minimum, state law would need to be passed to allow local units to level levy a sales tax, either generally or in support of transit. Um, but it could also, a local sales tax could require a constitutional amendment, which would require a statewide vote of the people to either explicitly allow for a local sales tax in the constitution or at a minimum to ease the rate and disposition restrictions. I see. Okay. So it's just, it's, it's a, it's a heavy lift. I mean, it requires a lot of, of policy, um, uh, a lot of moving parts basically. Okay. All right. Okay, well, this is uh, this is an interesting topic. I know that it's um, it's one that um, the county executives in Oakland and Macomb have come out strongly against. Um, you know, they're saying that their their communities um, have other transportation needs rather than um, you know regional. Uh, mm-hmm. They're talking particularly roads, the yes. and particularly in Macomb, which which is just awful. But it's um, but you know the there's a very strong argument to be made that without regional transportation, your whole economy suffers. And so you know this is part of the debate that is going on um, up north as we speak. So yeah, okay, all right. Well, thank you, Jill. That was uh, that was interesting, and I appreciate you joining us and and making this complicated topic so understandable. Thank you. Okay. And that will do it for this edition of Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. Remember, the council operates as a public resource, and all of our papers, along with blogs, op-eds, and other resources, are available for download on our website, crcmich.org. We operate as a nonprofit through the generosity of Michigan's corporations, foundations, and individuals like you. If you'd like to make a donation, go to our website, crcmich.org, and click on the contribution button on the homepage. We also welcome feedback, which you can send via email to crcmich at crcmich.org. I'm Nancy Derringer, and until next time, I leave you with this observation by our founding president, Lent Upson. The right to criticize government is also an obligation to know what you're talking about. Until next time, thanks for listening.